and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me on the Hitting Play hotline is someone who's ready to party like it's 1999, Steve. Welcome back. Uh, thank you. It's, it's kind of a boring 1999, but... <laughs> <laughs> the, the real one ended up being a little more exciting. Uh, just, just a bit. A bit less violent. <laughs> Well, this week we watched Space 1999, a science fiction TV series from the 70s about a small moon base crew and their adventures hurtling through space after an accident breaks the moon from Earth's orbit and sends it into deep space. More specifically, we watched the first episode entitled Breakaway. It originally aired September 4th, 1975. So Steve, do you remember watching this show at all in its original run? Uh, I, I actually do remember. <laughs> I do remember uh, watching it at least one or two uh, of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, it, it, it uh, debuted in uh, 1975, so I would have been about nine years old at the time. Uh-huh. Would have been a, a young uh, uh, Star Trek fan at the time, and so a new uh, sci-fi uh, program. All well, that that was I was thrilled. That was right up my alley mm-hmm. until I watched a couple of episodes and then. Lost my enthusiasm, but uh, <laughs> it 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 didn't fulfill my hopes. Let's just say that your interest floated away like a rogue moon, <laughs> something like. That. <laughs> yeah, this is something I had never seen before. I I know it was released on DVD a number of years ago, and uh, just something that uh, never really aired on syndication when I was growing up. No, it, I mean it only filmed uh, uh, two seasons. And I guess a third season was planned, but uh, never really developed. So there was there wasn't a lot of it around. But you know, fortunately, it's syndicated through uh, through YouTube now, so it, it is available. Yes, and uh, if you want to follow along, it's also available on Tubi TV, T U B I TV. That's uh, available on the Apple Store and I believe the Roku uh, channel store as well. Now, just a little background on this series. Uh, like Steve said, it ran for two seasons. From September 1975 to November 1977, the first series was a co-production by ITC in the UK in Italy's RAI. And then, uh, I guess, Italy bailed on Series 2, and then it became solely a UK production. I had always assumed this was an American show because of the two leads, which were the uh, real-life husband and wife, Mission Impossible stars Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. But uh, no, this was a European show. And uh, despite the show's producer and co-creator Sylvia Anderson preferring British actors in these starring roles, uh, Sir Lou Grade, he was the head of ITC, he hired American lead actors as a way of trying to help sell the show to American networks. Uh, apparently he felt that, the, uh, that, their, that their raw charisma of uh, Landau and Bain was... Uh, would just be irresistible to American audiences. <laughs> it was interesting, their chemistry. <laughs> it, 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 it was. And Sir Lou Grade also brought in an American TV writer uh, with uh, an extensive resume. This was George Belek, and he was credited as the polisher of the show's main concepts. He was uh, the guy that made the, uh, the writer's guide to help the writer's room, like, uh, this is the definitions of these characters, or this is how the moon facilities work. This is the storylines that we've already done. So, uh, you know, an attempt to help the writer's room 
Belak came up with this writer's Bible of sorts. He had uh, previously worked on a lot of shows like um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents or the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Uh, not necessarily sci-fi stuff, but, you know, he had some credible shows under his belt, I guess. Oh, and speaking of casting, you know, when you think of 70s sci-fi, you invariably think of Star Wars. And I was surprised to see that some of Space 1999's guest stars went on to be in the Star Wars films. Yes, uh, there, there were a number of actors that went on to Star Wars. Uh, there was Peter Cushing, uh, Christopher Lee, and David Prowse, who played uh, convincingly the body of Darth Vader, though, <laughs> on his voice. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's actually a lot more. Like, I went in and just kind of did the research to see where these people ended up. Uh, there was Julian Glover, who was General Veers in The Empire Strikes Back. Michael Culver, who was Captain Nita in The Empire Strikes Back. Michael Sheard, who was Admiral Ozzel in The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Jack McKenzie, who just played Rebel Force Deck Lieutenant in The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Angus McGinnis, he was Gold Leader in A New Hope. Shane Rimmer was uncredited as an Incom Engineer in A New Hope. And really, who could forget that him in that role? <laughs> the incomes aren't going to work without the engineer. That's right. <laughs> Richard Le Parmentier was General Mahdi in A New Hope. And Brian Blessed played Boss Nass in The Phantom Menace. You know, I ran across that that Brian Blessed was in it, but I, I, I had no idea where he, where he could have fit in. He's, he's very recognizable as an actor. Yeah. Um, but so I couldn't imagine. I, I just assumed that it must have been a lot of makeup. <laughs> He's been in a number of things. So I Claudius, he played Augustus Caesar, and an excellent actor. No, the more research I did on this show, the more surprises I found. Uh, you probably know this, Steve, but Space 1999 would have never existed if it wasn't for an earlier sci-fi series called UFO. Yes, it was. Uh, it, it was originally uh, supposed to be. Uh, an offshoot of that, uh, kind of a development of the series where they found that the episodes that took place on the moon were, were some of the higher rated in the series, so they decided to uh, make a, a separate show about a moon base. That's funny, yeah, and they just decided to take the storyline 20 years in the future and call it UFO 1999. Even though that idea was shelved, it just that story just kept living on. And uh, the Andersons brought the idea to a man named Abe Mandel. He was ITC's second-in-command in New York, and they tried to sell him on this revamped idea of the UFO series. And he was open to the idea, but he wanted more action. So Anderson told him, okay, we'll blow up the Earth in the first episode. <laughs> and uh, Mandel thought that would just be a real horrifying thought, you know, to, to put in the viewers' minds for an opening episode. So uh, Anderson was like, okay, I'll change it to a lunar explosion instead. They wanted to make things uh, exciting. Yeah. Little did then any of us know that their idea of excitement was uh, kind of a boardroom meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but there's plenty of blinking lights going on in the background. That's true. <laughs> in fact, the more that they kind of refined the concepts of the show, the more it shifted in tone. Uh, in the idea of it, also in the visual effects, really towards Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And uh, even the fact that they named it Space, colon, 1999, it was kind of meant to mirror this, kind of invoke the, the memory of that movie. 
Yes, and in fact, there there are links to the movie because, again, this came from the uh, pre-Star Wars uh, era. It's just a few years before uh, Star Wars was made. So, it, you know, nowadays we tend to compare everything to Star Wars as, as being the impetus of all sorts of uh, franchises like, uh, you know, the renewed um, uh, Star Trek, the uh, Battlestar Galactica, both versions, uh, and... Star Wars really did give a shot in the arm to the entire genre, but this really owed its inspiration to um, the 2001 the Space Odyssey, and in fact, even uh, the, the special effects person uh, who worked on Space 1999, Brian Johnson, also worked on uh, 2001, and you can really see it in the design of the uh, spacecraft, and I found that the, the scene with, uh, with Landau Commander John Koenig, uh, on his way to uh, to Moonbase Alpha, really uh, parked back to 2001 with the trip to uh, the space station, yeah. Earth. Uh, I thought that the two looked really very much alike. And, and Brian Johnson went on to do special effects for The Empire Strikes Back, so there's uh, yet another Star Wars connection. Yes, another giant. And Alien, I believe, he also worked on previous to that. Definitely a competent... Uh, special effects director for this show. Yes, and apparently, at the time that the show was made, it was the most expensive British television production ever. Wow. And yet, from reading interviews with Johnson, uh, apparently they really didn't have a lot of money to spend on the special effects. So he, I'm sure that special effects people are always probably complaining that they don't have enough of a budget. But according to him, they, they had to scale a lot back, and they had to you know really economize Yeah, are really hold up. They're for the most part pretty credible. Yeah, really detailed. I mean, you can tell they're miniature sets, but really detailed in the the way they moved and everything is it's very clever. Like you could tell, even though they were probably on a shoestring budget, special effects wise, uh, it uh, it really came off pretty well for the time. Doesn't hold up necessarily, but uh, a great look to it. Apparently, he used a lot of things like taking photographs of models and then reproducing them to have, you know, multiple photographs to to create scenes mm -hmm. rather than having to build a lot of models. Um, he also used, instead of a blue screen projection that, that became kind of standard after uh, Star Wars, uh, instead what he'd do is he'd film the ships against a black background and then would uh, layer on multiple ships. As, as long as they didn't uh, actually cross paths or overlap, <laughs> it created a credible, quick, and uh, inexpensive uh, way of, uh, of depicting the eagles in flight. Huh. Yeah, and it, and it uh, eliminated a number of steps that necessary with blue screen projections. So yeah, just uh, coming up with some pretty clever workarounds anyway. Mm -hmm. You can't really talk about this show without mentioning the problems that existed. And man, this show had a rough start. <laughs> the uh, the writer that I mentioned that was brought in, George Bellack, he left, I believe, right after the show started because of creative differences. In addition to that, they had six weeks of unusable footage because of camera problems, and their studio was supposed to shut down, so they, they had to secretly move everything to Pinewood Studios, 
and it resulted in a union blacklisting. <laughs> and while they were shooting, the UK was suffering coal shortages, and they had all kinds of power outages. And I guess it didn't affect the filming, but I guess uh, where the film was processed uh, had uh, experienced a lot of power outages, and that really delayed the show as well. That's just on the technical side. As far as the cast goes, everybody had problems with everybody during this show. As I'm going through some of the research, the actors didn't like the producers. The producers didn't like the office in New York meddling with the show. Uh, the show's creators got divorced. And it was even canceled between the first and second series. As I mentioned before, Italy left after the, uh, the first series. And, you know, we're no longer funding it. And these problems just got worse and worse. I was reading about... Martin Landau was getting scripts from the, the, the new writers or producers, and he would just write all over the script. Uh, terrible story, uh, not really told well, uh, this ruins all of our credibility built up to this point, and it, it's just hilarious to see how much everybody disliked each other <laughs> during the run of the show. Oh, Landau wasn't wrong. No, no, not at all. In fact, that's one of the things I read in, the, in an interview with, uh, with Brian Johnson, the special effects guy. That he, that when asked why he thought the uh, the show was ultimately canceled, uh, he he didn't uh, soft pedal it. He said that basically the scripts were rubbish. Uh, Landau and Bain were just wooden actors, and uh, the aliens uh, in the show uh, were pretty much laughable. So he he didn't have <laughs> he didn't have fond memories of the show. So that it kind of ties into what you're saying that everyone seemed to be unhappy with it. In fact, the, the script that uh, Lan that specifically was mentioned in the story I read that Lando had a problem with was about Moonbase Alpha dealing with an intelligent rock. <laughs> that's, that's really, that's really uh, unfair and unkind to Barbara Bain. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> no, Barbara Bain, I was reading some of her comments. Now, keep in mind, she's in her 80s, so I'm not going to nitpick everything she said, but I just thought it was funny how... She mentioned uh, in a, I believe it was a 2010 interview, how they had uh, scientific advisors on the show to help, you know, make sure the scientific accuracy, including the fact that there's no sound in space, but they had to use it anyway. <laughs> Despite all of the problems, it amazingly had a run of 48 episodes, and it did, you know, receive a modest following. Uh, like you said, it almost went forward with that third season, too. But, the, you know, of course, that never materialized. And, and you do run, you do run into references to it periodically. It's not like it's uh, like it was made, aired briefly, and it was canceled and forgotten. Uh, there, there are still people who are fans of the show. You know, they they have done uh, DVD releases of both of the seasons of it. And as of 2012, it was announced that there were plans to uh, reboot the uh, the program as uh, Space. 2099. Huh. Now that was uh, that was in February of 2012. So that news is 40 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but in uh, mid 2014, it was confirmed that yes, they are actively working on this. Of course, there's been no news you know since then. So that's a year and a half without news. But that, at least that's a little more recent than than four years old. Yeah. And apparently, you know, the original series began production in 1973. So that had a couple of years before it actually was ready for the air. So who knows? We, we may be uh, treated to, uh, to Landau and Baines's children <laughs> lost in space. Sorry, that's a different show.
Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> danger, danger. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so the, the actual date that the moon breaks off from the Earth was September 13th, 1999. And uh, fans of the show actually gathered together for this big celebration on that day. And, uh, in fact, there was even a fan video, uh, kind of like a, uh, a lost episode that they, they made with uh, special effects and sets, like, meticulously made. And it included one of the uh, cast members, and it was supposed to be that she was the last person left on the moon base. Uh, everyone was in the process of finally evacuating to a habitable planet, and it was kind of like the, uh, the send-off that the fans always wanted, you know, the final shutdown of Moon Base Alpha. It's, uh, I guess it's available on YouTube, and uh, it, it was released on some of the DVD sets. So, uh, yeah, it's still you know, had a pretty good following. Well, I can understand how they were able to, even for just a fan-produced uh, piece, uh, I can I can certainly understand how they uh, were able to get you know, a member of the original cast uh, to, to participate in it, because I can't imagine many of them got a lot of work uh, <laughs> after it. So. <laughs> some did, some did. Some did, yes. Well, let's get right into this episode. This is uh, This is interesting. So, we start with this cold open in space, we see the sun in the distance with the earth in front of it, and slowly shifting over in the frame, closest to us, is the moon. And below, we read the words, The Dark Side of the Moon, September 9th, 1999. Which is interesting because there actually is no dark side of the moon, it's really the far side of the moon. Right. Because <laughs> it goes directly from calling it the dark side of the moon to a well-lit lunar surface. <laughs> And the date struck me, September 9, 1999, which is 9999. That uh, was a very important uh, date in my childhood because it was the day that the Sega Dreamcast was released. Ah. Very much looking forward to it. It, it was the, uh, the first console billed as a console that was thinking because it had a clock. <laughs> well, it, it says something for how fascinating the show is. It's like... In, in doing a, a summary of the first episode, you quickly shift to discussing Sega. <laughs> well, I was trying to think. I was trying to think, what was I doing September 9th, 1999? Uh, I was looking up, trying to see what exactly was going on in real life around that time. And uh, some of the big songs were Smooth by Santana. Uh, American Beauty and The Matrix came out. And uh, Mambo Number no. 5 was big on the charts. And of course, for me, uh, The Phantom Menace came out uh, that that year, and uh, that was a traumatic event that I will never forget. <laughs> We're all scarred. <laughs> so we then cut to a miniature set on the moon's surface, and here we read the words, Nuclear Waste Disposal Area 2. As, As you find out uh, later in the episode, uh, disposal of nuclear waste is one of the uh, biggest problems facing the Earth in 1999. Apparently, the decision was made to just uh, put it on the other side of the moon. <laughs> yes, th this came with a message, this show, I found. Problem solved. <laughs> so now, cutting to a real set, we see two men in orange spacesuits. These men are named Steiner and Nordstrom, and they're driving into the nuclear waste disposal area in some sort of lunar transport car. There's cool little vehicles in this show. They radio into Dr. Victor Bergman, played by Barry Morse, stationed at the site's control room, saying that they are about to check the radiation. So we see them use all kinds of handheld monitors and dipsticks or something to check radiation levels. 
uh, before barrels of nuclear waste are lowered into the surface of the moon. Next we see Dr. Helena Russell, played by Barbara Bain. Uh, she also radios into the men asking for a thorough check of the radiation. And Bergman and Russell, they check a series of monitors and remark that the brain activity of the two men seems to remain normal. Which, which I found really kind of interesting that that apparently they had the technology to monitor the uh, the brain activity of uh, of the two men out there on the lunar surface, but apparently were unable to remotely sense the radiation levels. <laughs> you think that would be much easier? I, I would think that might be easier, and uh, <laughs> given the way the plot unfolds, maybe a more advisable. <laughs> Now we next cut to space and we see the ship flying away from Earth towards the moon. And now that you mention it, it never really did overlap. Uh, this ship is called Eagle 2 and it calls in for a landing at Moon Base Alpha. I do remember as a child the Eagle being one of the merchandised parts of the show. That there were action figures and the, the real big prize, the, the, the real thing that, if you were a fan of the show, I suppose, that you'd be looking for under the tree Christmas morning was the eagle that really was about the best part of the show. It is a cool little ship. I was going to ask if you if you did have one of those or, or do remember them. I never had one. I always kind of wanted one. It was certainly the most convincing actor on the program. <laughs> At least wouldn't. So now, cutting into the interior of the Eagle, we see Commander John Koenig, played by Martin Landau, awaiting his arrival on the moon. For my money, there is no better action hero than Martin Landau. <laughs> Very good in a Mission Impossible. I mean, we, we do have to give him credit, but, uh, you know, he, he can only work with what he's given, so. <laughs> now, the, we see a crew member walk up to uh, Koenig with a tray, and she brings him a cup of coffee and what looks like a pack of cigarettes. Couldn't tell. It was a, it was a different era. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And uh, what do you think of these uniforms? Well, I think that, that they deserve a show of their own. The, uh, <laughs> the, the uniforms, because I really kind of studied them a bit while re-watching this. Well, we could just call them ugly and leave it at that, but I, I, <laughs> but I think they deserve more than that. The uniforms were an ugly beige polyester. It was, it was basically almost a tunic and bell bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> and the the left sleeve was colored. You know, there, there was from chocolate brown to or yellows and or red or orange. Yeah. That I was never quite able to figure out what the colors signified, but obviously it was supposed to signify something like the like the shirt colors in Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. But what really perplexed me the most about it was, was the zipper. Yes, yes, the large zipper goes right up the sleeve, right up to the neck with a huge tab. It's just, it's just apparently in 1999 people had trouble getting their left arms in and out of the shirt. <laughs> I just, they, they all had these zippers. And it, it made no sense whatsoever, but they were there. Maybe that's where you stash your lunar cigarettes. <laughs> No, I, I just, I had a look into this a little more. They were designed, and he's given a, a pretty big credit on the screen, uh, by a fashion designer named Rudy Geinreich, if I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, 
And uh, he was actually a pretty famous fashion designer. His most famous achievement is inventing the monokini, a topless bikini. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not sure that's an invention so much as an oversight. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, those uniforms are very much a part of the show. When I I think of Space 1999, I can just picture the crew in, in those very distinct yet bland uniforms. <laughs> the other part of the uniform that, that's important is on, on the really wide, uh, apparently Velcro belts, <laughs> it's a sort of, a, I don't know, it's a sort of a, a multi-functional tool that it's a door opener, it's a communicator, it's a television. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, apparently the, uh, the doors on, uh, on Moonbase Alpha Aren't able to sense when when someone's approaching to open automatically. No. So they so they have to remove this uh, this sort of device from their belt and point it at the door and click a button to, <laughs> to open them and close them. But it also doubles as a communicator with it with a small television screen built into the end of it. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That was hilarious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And keep in mind, the first rem- the first television remote control ever invented was called the Space Commander. So there could be something there. Clearly a tie-in. <laughs> so just then, they receive a transmission on the ship from Commissioner Simmons. And uh, via monitor, he tells Koenig that he has been approved by the Space Commission to be the commander of Moonbase Alpha, and that the previous commander, Gorski, had just been relieved of his duties one hour ago. What a coincidence, considering he was on a... He was already on his way. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, I have got a new assignment for you, should you choose to accept this mission. <laughs> now, Simmons tells Koning that uh, it's his job not to worry about the previous man in charge, but to worry about putting a man on the planet Meta. And Planet Meta is pretty big in this show, even though we really don't see it much. It's a rogue Earth-like planet, possibly capable of supporting life, that right now, at this moment, is passing by the outer limits of the solar system. Uh, they really are intent throughout this episode to get men on Meta. That's like the whole goal of this mission. Uh, Simmons notes that they also have received signals from Meta via their space probe. And uh, these signals, we'll see them a couple times in this episode. It's really like electronic beeping with uh, waves in the shape of a green ring. Apparently it's it's fascinating because people in, in the show just would gaze at it. <laughs> Think. <laughs> and uh, he also tells Koenig that the metaprobe astronaut virus infection should not deter them from their mission to place a man on the planet's surface. Yeah, there's a sentence that really should never have been said. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is uh, what you'd call in writing, like, placeholder text. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm still curious about the name of the planet. Who, who came up with meta? It's just meta, meta what? Yeah, yeah. Meta's an adjective. <laughs> <laughs> uh, meta world peace, that's what they're looking for. That's, that's clearly it. <laughs> he got his inspiration. <laughs> Would not surprise me. <laughs> so, back at the nuclear waste disposal area, the men are radioing back into Bergman and Russell to assure them there's been no radiation leakage, 
And, of course, just when everything seems to be going normal, they notice an increase in the brain activity in one of the men, Nordstrom. Sadly, in none of the script writers. <laughs> now, uh, Russell calls for the other man, Steiner, to go get Nordstrom out of there, but just as she gives the order, Nordstrom screams and he falls backwards. They also call for security to go out there and retrieve this guy, Nordstrom. Uh, he begins to panic. He's even slapping away Steiner in this low-gravity tussle, which is pretty funny. What I really liked was, appreciated was when they uh, decided that they've got to send the security out to retrieve him. <laughs> and they call up security, and the two security guys apparently already all suited up, <laughs> loitering around a monitor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> right there anyway. They always stationed there ready to go. And I just, I love this fight because they they leap over the transport car and right into moon crates. Because why not? You're always going to have some boxes there. Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, we, we get a look at Nordstrom. We see that he has like crazy eyes. One of them's a little milky or glazed over as he goes berserk. Uh and uh, his rampage, though, is stopped. He, he runs into the limits of the yard, which are uh, governed, I guess, by some sort of energy force field. And he falls and kind of cracks his head on a moon rock. Passes out. And uh, from this exciting scene, we now cut to the show's opening sequence. Ah, uh, yes, it's the opening sequence. The, the theme song that kind of veers back and forth between orchestral strings and a sort of disco funk uh, fusion. Yeah, it's... It, and then back. This surprised me so much. It's like, you see, Martin Landau, very dramatic. Dun, 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 dun. Barbara Bain. Dun, dun. <laughs> and the title, Space 1999. And then... <laughs> it's like this action montage with this, yeah, funky theme music. It just... I, I started cracking up. I, I did not expect this. Came right out of nowhere. Yes, it did. <laughs> and then it went back to the orchestral strings. Yeah, it, it finished with that. But I, I love, during this action montage, we get these extremely quick cuts of what we're going to see during the episode. And intercut is the words, this episode, just periodically flashing between scenes, in case we didn't get it. So now, cutting back to the episode, we see the Eagle 2 finally land on a platform at Moonbase Alpha. And as the ship docks, Koenig is greeted by Bergman, who tells him that, well, you know, things might be a little more serious than what he's been told. He, he tells Koenig that people are dying from the virus infection, but at least that's the story. Yes, you can tell that Gorski's a little bit relieved to be making his exit. <laughs> yes, yeah, G Gorski comes up and, uh... Yes, did I, did I mention the virus? Uh, well, good luck. <laughs> Feel free to call me anytime. Uh, thing though that that transportation within the base appears to be by a sort of pneumatic tube. Yeah, that scurries them around. Yeah, and the design of the set is pretty nice. Like even when we see Koenig entering the moon base here, you know everything's got that light gray and white look to it. Yeah, the sets are actually uh, well done, uh, along with the special effects. I mean, visually, aside from the uniforms, it's a well done show. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind working there. <laughs> now, as Koenig and Bergman enter Koenig's new office, uh, Koenig asks for some clarification on this whole virus story. It's a pretty interesting first day of a job for him. Uh, Bergman tells him that he's not sure what it is. It seems like radiation, but there's no radioactivity. Because, of course, 
radiation, virus, very similar things. <laughs> and with any uh, work of fiction, radioactivity is always the, uh, the cure-all, the disease, everything's radioactive. As Homer Simpson once said about beer, it's the, the solution to and source of all of life's problems. <laughs> Now, Koenig assures Bergman that he does not take these deaths lightly, but stresses that with the planet Meta passing so close to the solar system, they really only have this short window to make their historic landing. Uh, Bergman tells Koenig that he should meet with the medical head, Dr. Helena Russell, whose findings were actually suppressed by the previous commander. So we next cut to Dr. Russell's office, and she is greeted by Koenig on that miniature handheld monitor we were talking about. Uh, why? She was using that, who knows, because Koenig then just steps right into the office and introduces himself. Well, what I, what I appreciate is, is when she, when she uh, gets him on the, um, on the monitor there, she stands up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's why. <laughs> There's a lot of whys in this. <laughs> and, and one thing that I found with, with, as you go through it, and, and I've watched a couple of other episodes, too, I... I really don't have no idea why. Uh, one of the things I found from, from watching those other episodes is that there's no real attempt to connect problems and explanations in any sort of logical way. <laughs> the, entire, the entire series is based on every time a problem comes up, there's a period of confusion followed by immediately leaping to the correct conclusion. <laughs> it's very disconcerting. Yes. Especially considering that they're always uh, encountering things for the first time. <laughs> these these are very intuitive people. Oh, yes. Of course. These are the best. <laughs> now, now, Koenig in Russell's office, he, he begins to play with her replica antique microscope. He asks when the Metaprobe astronauts will recover from the virus. And Russell tells him that it's not a virus but it seems to be some sort of brain damage, and they are in critical condition. And uh, these men, they're just being stricken out of nowhere, and they're not recovering. Uh, we learn also that there's been 11 cases so far, and 9 deaths. So Russell shows Koenig an image of one of the astronaut's brains, points out that there's some sudden malignancy that causes disorientation and all these problems. But their findings are rife with inconsistencies. None of the patients had been exposed to radiation, nor have the Metaprobe astronauts been near that nuclear waste site where the other workers were stricken. And the only thing that's been consistent is that they've been given the same training program, or at least the astronauts have. So really, they, they're trying to connect these dots when there's really no reason to, other than they've all been sickened. Yes, and it's by a virus, by radiation, by brain damage, and yet their faces look half-melted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that too. No explanation to that. <laughs> now, Russell tells Koenig that she can't guarantee that anyone now heading out into deep space won't be affected in the same way, but if, you know, Koenig wants to try to send these guys to the planet Meta still, it's ultimately his choice. So Koenig has to see the men, and uh, yeah, like like you're saying, Steve, they're, they have diseased-looking skin on their faces. Uh, they're also in hospital beds. They're, you know, completely in comas, but they have... These glazed-over eyes. That's uh, something we saw by that guy Nordstrom that went crazy earlier. Yes, that's one of the two 
real identifying characteristics of whatever this malady is, is the spontaneous onset of apparently cataracts. Yeah, on the right eye only, I think, too. <laughs> Maybe that's all they can afford contact-wise. <laughs> and they had to share that. Yeah, rinse them off. Now, we next cut to Koenig meeting with head of reconnaissance. This is Australian astronaut Captain Alan Carter. Koenig now knows that the Metaprobe astronauts will never recover, so he inquires about the feasibility of using the backup crew, and Carter tells him, well, it's difficult because all the new calculations that we have to make, And uh, but with each passing hour, now their window of a successful launch, it's just getting more and more narrow. So Carter can kind of tell, you know, there's something that's really not being told to us. But uh, he assures them, hey, you know, if you want to do this launch, we can make it happen. Koenig then goes to his office for a quiet moment of contemplation when Commissioner Simmons calls in on the view screen. And uh, Koenig alerts Simmons to the current situation, but the commissioner is not phased. Uh, Koenig demands that uh, Simmons has to stop all the further shipments of nuclear waste to the moon, you know, because if that's... If that's what the problem is, maybe that will help stop it. But Simmons tells him he cannot do this because, as you mentioned earlier, Steve, nuclear waste disposal is one of the biggest problems of their time. Not Y2K. Nuclear waste. Ah, they had no idea. Of course, it, it begs the question, if you're going to dispose of nuclear waste, you go through all the bother to bring it into space, and as far as the moon, why not just jettison it and let it... <laughs> Sail off into space. <laughs> Shoot it at the sun. Why bother to store it at all? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> so, Koenig, you know, Koenig wants a nuclear waste stop. Simmons says no, it has to continue. So, Koenig proposes this compromise. If Simmons can stop all further shipments of nuclear waste to the moon, he will ensure that the Metaprobe is launched. So, Commissioner Simmons says that he can only promise a temporary delay, but he agrees. And Koenig is also troubled by the fact that he was lied to about this virus. All the way until the time he got there to the moon. Uh, Simmons informs him that the cover story must be kept up because the International Lunar Finance Committee would withdraw all support for the Meta Probe. Now, this, is, this I think, is, uh, is uh, kind of interesting. That, first of all, the... Uh the problem of, of nuclear waste being being so prominent uh, was very much a 1970s uh, thing back when the nuclear industry was growing mm -hmm. and was seen as a, as a, you know a, an energy source of the future. There was a lot of concern over over that, and, and so that's that which isn't really much of a concern now, or really wasn't in 1999, but was projected forward. But also, one of the things was that the villain, I mean, the commissioner is the villain in the piece, mm -hmm. and his, his insistence that on hushing things up, that was a real theme in the 1970s after, after Watergate. Yeah. If you think about it, in a lot of television shows and a lot of movies, it featured the dishonest uh, businessman or politician intent on covering up a problem so that the public wouldn't know of it because it would interfere with their agenda. And you, you see this crop up in, in Jaws, in, in the China Syndrome. It was just a, a real theme that showed up everywhere hmm. in, in Hollywood uh, in the 1970s. And sure enough, in Space 1999, it's projected <laughs> forward that, well, it's, 
there's a shady official trying to cover up a problem. <laughs> Just this uh, trope that, of course, they, they latched onto right away. <laughs> That's funny. Now, th- this is one of my favorite moments of the episode. Koenig calls Paul on his view screen. And uh, Paul seems to be a little busy at the moment, talking with a lady. And, uh, Koenig tells him that he's going to check radiation levels himself, and he needs two volunteers. And, you know, as Paul talks, the lady walks away. It was, just, it was just kind of funny, like, what was Paul doing? <laughs> Paul's getting irritated at being interrupted at a key <laughs> moment. <laughs> it seems that way. <laughs> what is it now? Radiation? Oh, great, fine. <laughs> and she walks away from Paul. That was it. She wasn't sticking around. But volunteers? I remember I forgot something. <laughs> yeah, I've got the thing with the, with the you know, it, it was on the schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we next cut to another set of the exterior of the moon, where Koenig and Bergman are flown in the Eagle 2 to Nuclear Waste Disposal Area 2. Now, this is a very key part of the episode, is that they have to first stop by Waste Disposal Area 1, which is currently abandoned and radiation-free. Uh, they're just flying over it, and they're going to move on from there to Waste Disposal Area 2. And we see that their pilot, Collins, is starting to exhibit some strange blinking and facial movements. Never a good sign. No. <laughs> so as the Eagle 2 flies on to its next destination, we cut to commercial. So at this point, why don't we also take this opportunity to take a commercial break? We will pay some bills, and we will be right back. Hey, you think oatmeal is just a breakfast for your little old grandma, yeah? You flared out wrong. Introducing some tough oatmeal for tough people. Stone's Original Oatmeal. What's our secret? Shut up. Stone's Original Oatmeal. Wake up your face. It's got little rocks in it. And we're back. So, when we return, we once again see the set from the beginning of the episode, where the two men are riding around the disposal site in the lunar vehicle. The Eagle 2 lands, and Koenig, Bergman, and their pilot Collins enter the control room. And the three men are watching on monitors as the two volunteers outside are checking radiation levels, but once again, everything's all clear and deemed safe. And as these checks are taking place, we see Colin's behavior, it's just getting stranger and stranger. He's, he's rubbing his face, he's rubbing his right eye, and he starts to yell to Koenig, I gotta get out of here, I gotta get out of here. The other identifying characteristic of the, uh, the <laughs> virus, uh, brain tumor, whatever it is, it's the cataracts and the sudden urge to get out of here wherever there happens to be. <laughs> No, I love that he's yelling this, you know, in this crazed state to the commander, and Koenig's not phased. He's just like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll leave soon enough. <laughs> Instead of going, excuse me? <laughs> he's like, no, no! And the, I told you, you should have gone before we left the base. <laughs> the, the camera zooms in on, on Colin's face to reveal that he, he has this milky, glazed-over right eye. So we know he's affected. And Collins immediately attacks Bergman and Koenig. Uh, he's hitting Koenig with his helmet. And then he starts attempting to break the window to the outside to escape. And he's really cracking the window, so he's, he's making some headway there. Uh, the three men begin to fight. And after a security officer comes in, Koenig stuns Collins with a laser gun. When you say a laser gun, that 
It looked to me more like a staple gun from uh, from Home Depot. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> uh, some great uh, security officer work there, yet again. Now that the uh, window is damaged and, and is uh, cracking and about to blow out, it's important that they get out of that room immediately. So they, of course, uh, drag Collins. <laughs> they drag Collins with them <laughs> face down. <laughs> Across the floor <laughs> and the threshold. <laughs> Apparently, a little bit of, uh, well, semi-passive aggression there. I guess. Yeah. So they, yeah, they drag him out. The the room seals off, and just in time, of course, because the glass window to the lunar surface finally breaks. So uh, back at Moonbase Alpha, Koenig asks Benjamin Uma. He's the head of the computer section to look into all records of the training flights of the probe astronauts and look for any correlation between the stricken men. Koenig returns to his office to find out that one of the metaprobe astronauts has died, and we next cut to Dr. Russell's office where the second astronaut has now also died. So now, Koenig decides, okay, let's reveal everything to the crew, <laughs> tells them that they were lied to, and these men are actually dying of an illness that nobody understands, and Koenig tells them, forget the probe, he's now determined to find out why these two men died. One thing I've noticed about this show is it's hard to keep track of time. Like, we obviously know that we start on September 9th, and it finishes with the climax on September 13th. But they don't really do a good job of dividing up the days for us. Uh, if you weren't paying attention, it would seem like this is all kind of happening within one day. Uh, this is the only time where we kind of get a sense of it, where we cut to Koenig's quarters that night. Uh, he's sitting in his chair, and he's reviewing the meta-signal. There he is looking at that green oscillating ring again, and he's contemplating the day's events, which we hear in voiceover quotes. This is kind of a confusing scene. I, I wasn't sure if he was, like, listening to sound clips, but I think they were trying to make us get a sense that, like, these are his thoughts. This is what he's hearing in his head. Yes, I think that's what they were going for, and that signified by the fact that he's sipping a cup of tea. <laughs> What's going on? It's the international sign for introspection. Yes. <laughs> I will point out that that his chair there is really the most substantial piece of furniture on the entire moon base. The in, in the control room or command center, the computers are generally either whole wall units mm -hmm. or on top of what appear to be card tables. <laughs> And the technicians uh, uh, sitting at them are, are sitting in, in chairs that, well, apparently in 1973, resin furniture was thought to be the wave of the future. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have some of those on my back deck. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you only have the space of an Eagle ship, you know, you want something that's stackable. And if you ever bought lawn chairs from the store, you know, they stack them pretty, pretty well. Sure, that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> it's all in that writer's Bible that we just haven't seen. That's right. <laughs> Somehow I have a feeling if we did see it, there'd be lots of, you know, little scraps of paper tucked into the different pages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Did I remember to mention? <laughs> green ring. Green oscillating ring. <laughs> now, also when uh, Koenig is thinking in this scene, uh, we hear a very profound quote. He thinks to himself that Neil Armstrong's giant leap was just a stumble in the dark. I don't even want to know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> So we next cut to Koenig meeting with Uma to find out if he was able to find anything in his research. And he shows Koenig that there was one commonality among all those who were sickened. They all flew over Waste Disposal Area 1 on numerous occasions. And uh, even their instrumentation blacked out very uh, briefly while they were flying over it. And uh, you know, that's obviously going to come into play. So we find out through Koenig's conversations with the crew that Waste Disposal Area 1 is one of the few structures on the dark side of the moon and is therefore used as a landmark to get to Waste Disposal Area 2. Uh, this is a site that we find out is flown over like four to six times a week. And the training pilots also fly over this site as a way of staying away from traffic. I, I just love the idea that they're, uh, they're navigating by uh, the lay of the land. Yeah. They're going from the Earth to the Moon, and they can't navigate from Moon Base Alpha to Waste Disposal Area 2? <laughs> and we'll find out later, there are guidance systems on these shuttles, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so a further look into this site shows that, despite there not being any radiation, heat levels continue to rise, and this, of course, defies all logic. As most things do in this episode. I just like that that's their solution for why doesn't this make sense? Well, you know, because it doesn't. <laughs> I like that they uh, that they get all of the analysis from the computers on on ticker tape. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they bring up Waste Disposal Area 1 on their view screen, and uh, we see that this site is starting to glow red with heat, and it's getting so hot that one by one it's burning out their cameras. So we next cut to Koenig flying out towards the area himself personally to view the situation. So as he approaches, we see these green lightning bolts of energy emanating from the site. Koenig ends up flying a little too close and ends up crash landing a small distance away as the crew looks on from monitors in the moon base. And they command a rescue ship to retrieve him. And as we look at the wreckage of his ship, we cut again to commercial. So when we return, we see Koenig getting examined at the moon base. Uh, like this, he's in uh, some sort of like chair with these electrodes attached to him. We see this like uh, wire that they just kind of stuck to his forehead for no reason. Again, no evidence of anything wrong. Dr. Russell reprimands Koenig for taking on such a foolish mission. And Koenig replies, I didn't know you cared. <laughs> they were clearly married. <laughs> A little cinema verite. <laughs> Uh, you could tell this was going to become a romance by the end of the season. <laughs> so we next cut to another area of the moon base where Bergman is examining a device from the Waste Disposal Area 1 that's used to measure magnetic output. He remarks that the device had nothing to record for five years when that area was shut down, but now, all of a sudden, its readings are showing a 20-fold increase. So, good thing he picked that up for no reason and checked it out. <laughs> So Bergman realizes that they were too focused on radiation, and now this device has given him a lead. Huh, I wonder what he's going to check for now. Bergman then shares his thoughts with Koenig and Russell. He tells them that they should have been checking for magnetic activity, and that's what's causing the strange activity at Waste Disposal Area 1. It also explains the blackout and the training pilot's instruments, as well as the health problems by those flying over the area. 
And Bergman then also warns, well, if it's happening there, it's probably going to happen at the current active waste disposal. That's area two. So at this point, we've determined that it's uh, this ailment afflicting people on the moon base. It's either a virus, radiation, brain damage, or now magnetism. (laughs) (laughs) They could could tell it was magnetism because the... uh, just before dying, the uh, the astronauts uh, found that their arthritis was uh, was much better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Koenig and Russell agree. That, uh, they declare the the new site off limits. They then fly an eagle ship by remote control this time. They've, if Koenig could do that before, why did he decide to go out there personally? Who knows. And uh, so now they got this remote control ship to monitor the situation. All of a sudden, as predicted, the magnetic readings go off the charts. And so much so that the Eagle ship is unable to make a smooth landing. They try to pull it back, but it crash lands. Koenig tells Russell that she was right. That radiation was the culprit. Magnetic radiation. And now they're sitting on the biggest bomb that man has ever made. The biggest magnet bomb. (laughs) Uh, I have to to admit that when I I heard that line of dialogue, we're sitting on the biggest bomb... Man ever made. At first, I thought he was referring to the show. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell this is where he really wanted to sell the line. <laughs> this meant a lot to Martin Lando. <laughs> Deeply invested. In it. So Koenig calls for an emergency code Alpha One to be passed on to Commissioner Simmons. So we next cut to the exterior of Moonbase Alpha, where Commissioner Simmons lands for a face-to-face meeting with Koenig. Evidently, uh, Koenig called for this emergency code. Simmons tried to follow up to say what's wrong. And when Koenig never responded, Simmons goes, okay, I'll just go and see, meet him face to face to see what the problem is. Not really the smartest thing to do if <laughs> in an emergency. <laughs> but I guess they had to get him there. So Simmons is then briefed on the situation by Bergman, who tells him that Waste Disposal Area 2 has 140 times the amount of nuclear waste as Disposal Area 1. So Simmons just, you know, wonders, hey, can it just burn itself out like the first place did? But they tell him that the only way to solve the problem is by somehow spreading out the mass in a very short period of time. It's a long, you know, plan, but they only have a short window to do it. Doesn't really seem feasible, but they're going to try. So we next see four Eagle ships, and they're equipped with these magnetic winches. And they fly to the waste disposal area too, in an attempt to manually empty all of the nuclear waste silos. Because apparently the problem is, is that the fact that so much nuclear waste in so close together that it's not critical mass, but just really kind of serious mass. <laughs> So they do this, and they're checking their readings in. The heat begins to dissipate, but their readings now indicate more magnetic fluctuations. It's getting so much that it's starting to damage the guidance controls of the ships, and two of them have to return. So with all of the Eagle ships currently in use or damaged, Koenig commands that Commissioner Simmons' ship be used to monitor the situation, and as we see it fly away from Moonbase Alpha, we cut to commercial. And when we return... Simmons declares their mission a success, and he goes right over and congratulates Koenig on a job well done. And uh, Koenig's looking at him like, you know, it's a little too early to tell. So as they continue to talk, the magnetic energy begins to surge at the site. We see one of the Eagle ships is completely blown up with a bolt of energy. 
So Koenig runs over to abort the mission, and the remaining eagles are called back as the site starts to explode. And uh, we get this montage of explosions on the lunar surface, one after another, and they become increasingly intense. It's like this chain reaction. This is what they blew their special effects budget on. <laughs> yes, clearly. <laughs> All of the fireworks stores around Pinewood Studios were cleaned out that day. <laughs> Was that a Roman candle? <laughs> yeah. Get it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fix it in post. <laughs> so now back at Moonbase Alpha, there the entire structure begins to quake and people are thrown into monitors and, man, they're thrown through glass windows and into walls. So we cut to an exterior shot of the lunar surface as the entire moon begins to drift away from the Earth. And as the moon begins to pick up speed, the crew is held to the floor by the increase in gravitational force. And I have to say, there is some great acting here. <laughs> they clearly studied Star Trek closely for this. <laughs> Shatner was their muse for the scene. Oh, clearly. A lot of uh, awkward posing on the floor, a lot of grimacing. As a series of, of nuclear chain reactions accelerates the uh, the moon out of Earth's orbit. Yes, yes. And uh, in case you didn't know what was happening with the crew, I believe one of them kind of mentions, oh, the G-forces! <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the salmon. <laughs> so basically what's happening is this nuclear site explodes and it effectively becomes a rocket like a, a rocket propulsion for the moon. And so it's just kind of like pushing it away. And uh, one of the critics of this episode was famed sci-fi writer Isaac Asimov, who said, uh, no, that wouldn't happen. If there was an explosion that big, it would just blow up the moon. Wouldn't push it out of orbit. <laughs> I can just picture Asimov sitting in front of his TV, just cursing at what he's seeing. Asimov in a bathrobe drinking a beer watching <laughs> 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 about this. <laughs> this is so unrealistic. <laughs> I think the idea they were going for, though, with the explosions is the idea of a ramjet. A controlled series of explosions, none of them big enough to destroy what it's pushing, but cumulatively able to accelerate it. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe it either, but... <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they're going for, at least. Yeah. But let me tell you, when the G-forces uh, went through the roof, oh, I'll bet they were regretting their resident chairs then. <laughs> 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 so yeah, just uh, probably a very disheartening thing to uh, write this science fiction script and having probably the most famous science fiction writer of all time come out and say, oh, this is terrible. So now as the moon begins to decelerate, the crew is able to slowly get back up and power returns to the station for some reason. Bergman explains that the exploding waste disposal site acted as a giant rocket propelling them out of Earth's orbit. And now that this explosion has stopped, Carter is able to land the ship. And as the crew kind of gathers themselves together, they try to address some medical concerns. We see there's a guy being carried away on a stretcher. Probably a lot of people with, you know, pieces of plate glass windows stuck in their foreheads. They switch to a camera view from a Mars satellite to see that the moon is now drifting further and further away from Earth into the outer reaches of the solar system. Now, personally, if I were Carter, I'm not sure I'd land on the moon. 
<laughs> You're already in a ship that you know can make it to Earth. I'm thinking of going home. Yeah, you know, that's that's what I was thinking. I, he is still in orbit around the moon. So, like, wherever the moon went, he got kind of pulled with them. So, like, the conceit, I guess, is that it's just too far away now. Because he's, you know, being dr- drifted backwards away from the Earth. So, he really can't make an attempt. And I don't think he'd want to abandon the crew. But, yeah, I'm with you. I'd <laughs> do an about face and head home. Yeah, it was, it was a shame. <laughs> it was... <laughs> I regretted doing it, but <laughs> but as we know, there was a, there was a lot of tension in that in the cast anyway. Yes, it it occurred to me while while watching this again, is it's remarkable how much Carter looks like uh, Fran Tarkenton. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's he's like an Australian Fran Tarkenton. <laughs> Incidentally, if you picture Fran Tarkenton's hair, that's the hair that pretty much every male member of the cast except for Martin Landau has. Pretty much, yeah. It's that whole kind of long, kind of like heading for a page boy thing, but <laughs> not quite. <laughs> it's pulling up just short. <laughs> yes, much like Happy Days, Space 1999 doesn't really nail the fashions and hairstyles of the time it's trying to represent. So Koenig now consults the central computer system to see if they can execute what's called Emergency Operation Exodus. And the computer tells them that there are indefinite factors. One, the moon on unknown trajectory. Two, constantly changing G-forces due to moon's movement away from Earth. Three, insufficient data to compute flight plan. And it then tells them, all factors in memory bank relating to Operation Exodus inapplicable. Insufficient data available under prevailing circumstances, and its final conclusion, human decision required. So it's like, oh, thanks, computer. (laughs) (laughs) You're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the computer is telling Koenig it's his choice, so everybody stops. This is a very slow and silent scene. They, They stop to look at Koenig as he silently and slowly walks to the center of the room. And uh, he goes behind one of the uh, folding picnic tables and presses a button on the console. And over the intercom, he addresses everybody at the base. (laughs) So now everyone's getting the bad news. He tells everybody, they have been blasted out of orbit and now are completely cut off from planet Earth. But they do have power, environment, and therefore the possibility of survival. He goes on to say that he believes an attempt to return to Earth at this point would be a failure, so in his judgment, they should not try to escape. Worst annual review ever. <laughs> Man, I really hate my job now. <laughs> Keep in mind, this is Koenig's fifth day as commander. In fairness, he is returned. He, this is his fifth day as commander in his second term there. Yeah. He had been there before. <laughs> he had commanded the base some five years earlier. Okay. Yeah. It's a bad week. We've all had bad weeks at work. This is a really bad week. <laughs> I, we're, we're all about to die, probably. <laughs> well, maybe not. I don't know. The computer told me. Yeah. Computer said I could make my own choice. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone just kind of looks at each other in silence. Dramatic music begins to swell, and we cut to black. And when we return, we see a GTV news broadcast. (laughs) This is a very 70-looking set. (laughs) The anchor informs us about the lunar accident 
that has had devastating consequences on planet Earth. There has been gravity disruptions and earthquakes in the United States, Yugoslavia, and southern France. That's the whole Yugoslav breakup, too. Yes, yes, there was no Yugoslavia at 1999. But there is an emergency meeting of the International Lunar Commission to decide on what steps can be taken to rescue the 311 stationed at Moonbase Alpha, though they believe that there is little hope that anyone even survived. Tell me they didn't pipe that through to the whole base. So as we zoom back from this broadcast, uh, we see that those stationed on the moon are watching this on their monitors. But as they're kind of drifting further and further away from the Earth, this broadcast is becoming more and more distorted. And this is like a real weird ending. They, they attempt to regain a signal. I guess there's some rabbit ears they're trying to control there with the knobs. And well, a little tinfoil. That'll, that'll do this. <laughs> yes. They're trying to get the signal back, and it's working a little bit, but it's just getting worse and worse. And they begin to pick up signals from the planet Meta in the form of that oscillating green ring. And there it is again, and and Koenig is kind of hopeful and happy when he sees this. And he wonders if that is where their future now lies. And so we, we then cut to an exterior view of Moonbase Alpha as Koenig speaks in voiceover. September 13th, 1999. Meta signals increasing. Yes, maybe there. And we cut to closing credits. And more funky music. As we mentioned, uh, against all odds, this show developed a, a, a following. In fact, over the years, multiple calls for, uh, for it to be rebooted, and, and now news that uh, perhaps it will be. In, in doing my research on this uh, I, I came across um, a website dedicated to uh, Space 1999. It's space1999.org, looking for updates on it. It's probably not a good sign, however, that their latest news item under the What's New section actually dates back to 2010. <laughs> but, but it's out there, so apparently somebody <laughs> at least wanted it. <laughs> Yeah, I found a, another site, too. There's a lot of, like, little pages. Uh, this one was updated July 1st, 2011. Uh, what was kind of cool about this page that I found is it gives you a calendar. It tells you today's date. So as of the recording of this episode, it has been 5,978 days since the moon has left the Earth's orbit. Oh. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you can see where, uh, you know, uh, Star Trek started to get rebooted and it became a little more fresh, a little more hipper, tried to appeal to more of a broad audience, uh, not just that, you know, devoted small, uh, well, I shouldn't even say small for Star Trek, but, you know, the devoted fans, they try to appeal to a mass audience. Star Wars is ever popular, so you can see why there would be renewed interest in picking up an existing property that maybe they can build upon. It would be it would be tough to to recreate this as a movie franchise. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a Netflix revival or something. But uh, as far as a, a big blockbuster movie franchise, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean it, it it definitely wouldn't support anything you know the cinematic. But you know the uh, one of the comments that I read from uh, from someone involved with the show was that that felt that. Well, the, moon leaving orbit was just ridiculous it should have been set on an asteroid the asteroid belt something like that yeah that you can see the you know okay could yeah. all right i can suspend this 
leaf that much. But the problem with the with this is that, aside from it being the moon <laughs> becoming the spaceship, <laughs> it's actually not a bad premise. I mean, it could set some things up that would be interesting. And aside from the fact that in, the, in season two, I guess it got really silly. Yes. It reminds me of, at least the, the, the pilot episode, and I understand the things, you know, got got worse as things went along. It reminds me of some old uh, radio programs that the BBC did called Journey to the Stars. It started off with the, with the Operation Luna and then a voyage to, uh, to Mars and that were big on building atmosphere and, you know, building the scenario, mm-hmm. but not really having much in the way of a payoff. This, this first episode was sort of like that. Just kind of, <laughs> they keep building up the scenario or, or, or a problem. Yeah. But there's no real good resolution to it. Yeah, they resolve it, but it's not a satisfying resolution in any way. If you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think that was one of the the fans, even though you know they were loyal, that was kind of one of the complaints is that there was really no big payoff, and that was part of the reason why they made that fan episode. The cast member that returned for that fan video, uh, Z- Xenia Merton, I believe her name is pronounced. Uh, she played Sandra Benes, and when she finally shuts down Moonbase Alpha, it releases that signal that we see in the pilot. And that was supposed to tie it all together and kind of give fans a little something. Yeah, I understand that um, that there's even been some uh, some work, uh, you know, sort of fan fiction, but with taking the episodes as they were filmed and reworking them, re-editing them, and uh, to come up with uh, more coherent stories. Huh. That according to the references that I ran across, <laughs> the fans actually produced something a bit better than the... Uh, program achieved yeah yeah so, you know they kind of tighten things up sure i mean you can see that in our viewing of this episode there were plenty of times in which they could have just completely scaled down scenes or just got rid of them all together and it would have made for you know a tighter story and of course as we talked about before we recorded this episode a lot of these 70s shows are just slower paced anyway yes lots of unnecessary scenes lots of unnecessary Reaction shots. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a lot of filler. <laughs> Just a lot of filler. Some you can blame I, on the time, uh, you know, the, the the era in which it was created, but some you can blame on the uh, show's creators as well. Yes. But yeah, I can see that because, you know, with um, Star Trek The Next Generation being well-regarded as a very good show, they still went in there for the Blu-ray releases, or maybe even as early as the DVD releases, but definitely on the Blu-ray, where they fixed a lot of the special effects. They try to make them uh, look uh, a little better with using CGI. So I I can totally see where people would want something remastered and uh, some of the effects uh, fixed, some of the scenes tightened up. You could kind of repackage this into a new show if you wanted to, but, uh, you know, why spend all that time and money? You're better off just archiving what you have and maybe moving on to uh, use that as an existing property that you base your new property on. Yes, I mean, well, if you edited out all of the unnecessary things, you've got a good, you know, solid 15 minutes. (laughs) Really, in fact, they could have edited the entire episode down to just the opening theme. <laughs> it covers all the major plot elements. It's much tighter. And in case you're wondering what episode, it tells you this episode. This one. This one, <laughs> of course. 
apparently, uh, according to the initial plans, initial scripts, this was supposed to be uh, 90 minutes. Really? Yeah. I don't know if I could take it. <laughs> no, I couldn't. 60 was slow enough. It was 60 minutes that I'll never get back, but then again, 60 minutes that felt like two days. <laughs> so, so I think I come out ahead on that. <laughs> yeah, somehow the math works out. So, Steve, what are your thoughts now upon visiting this episode or revisiting this episode for the podcast? Uh, well, just one question just, just lingers. It's, it's Moonbase Alpha instead of just the Moonbase. Where's Moonbase Beta? <laughs> Currently under construction. <laughs> Maybe the answer is in, in the second season. It should just be Moonbase. That's true. But even then, that's a pretty lousy name. Well, yes. But then again, it's like Delta Force. <laughs> no. What's 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 Alpha Force and Beta Force? <laughs> I've well, always wondered that. Well, Steve, I appreciate you suggesting this episode. This is something that I probably wouldn't have never made the effort to try to watch, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad I I get at least uh, the experience of of viewing one. Uh, I it was enjoyable. I I don't mean to make it seem like it was a chore to watch. I, I just don't think I'm going to complete the other 47 episodes. But, uh, you know, for somebody that, that is hearing this and, and hasn't seen it, it's worth checking it out. You might want to skip around if you're watching it, you know, on YouTube or something and uh, just kind of see more of the action and, and get a good look at the sets and the costumes. It's a nice little slice of uh, 70s sci-fi. It's pre-Star Wars 70s sci-fi, especially. This is sort of for, for cultural reference. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, as far as it coming out, in a new form nowadays, I think it would just be hurt so much by the comparisons that would be made to Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, you know, fair or unfair, it's just kind of hard to wedge yourself in to that, uh, that, that landscape that's so dominated by those two properties. But, uh, yeah, a nice little, uh, lesser known work of science fiction that, uh, is kind of silly and, uh, fun to laugh at and not really take seriously, but enjoyable to check out, I'd say. <laughs> the, the second episode... This works. Oh, is it really? Yes, it's a, a blue blob of light that comes in and possesses one of them. <laughs> and sucks up energy. <laughs> you might actually even want to watch that one. It's so bad. Skipping through it quickly, though. Oh, I think I'll have to now. All right, I take and back what I said. <laughs> it's, it's just awful. <laughs> thank you for Thank you for watching it, though. It's... Oh, no, thanks for suggesting it. This is great. I like uh, I like having this variety of different things we watch for the show. And uh, this is certainly one that uh, definitely would have escaped all of our notices. Uh, see, it's, it's, it's a little artifact, my childhood. Because as I say, nine years old, you know, I'm watching Star Trek and, and I'm loving that. You know, practically memorized the entire show. And, uh, oh, it's a new sci-fi program. Oh, this has got to be great. <laughs> You think it was slow for us. <laughs> when you're nine, ten years old, <laughs> it was really slow. Oh, man. There wasn't a lot of action. And so a couple of the cast members wrestled. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, well, that's, uh, that's not high adventure. <laughs> it was a bit of a letdown. I think I may have watched two or three episodes as a kid, and then just, this is lame. <laughs> Yeah, we all kind of reach that point in our childhood where we we see something for the first time and realize, oh, wait a minute, 
entertainment can come up with pretty lousy stuff too. You know, you, you kind of accept everything as great up to a certain age. For me, it was the movie Batman and Robin. That's when I realized, oh, these can be terrible as well. Yes, you know, it's, it, it, exactly. It's, it's that epiphany, you know, because before it, you know, Gilligan's Island is amusing. <laughs> then you realize, no, no, that's just really, really bad. <laughs> of course, not everybody goes through that epiphany. No, that's true. I have a cousin that's, oh, she's got to be 15 to 20 years older than me. He would still laugh at Gilligan's Island. Guarantee. <laughs> What coconuts are to Gilligan's Island, radiation is to Space 1999. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's a, a straight conversion. Yeah, it's all formulaic. Well, that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, how eventful your 1999 was, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Now, Steve, do you have anything you want to plug? I have nothing. <laughs> Very good. I am on Twitter myself. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I am also on Vine. My name there is also MC and Friends. And there you can check out my uh, little cartoons, uh, flip page animation. I try to make them humorous. But uh, anyway, you can uh, check my stuff out there. If you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out. And if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. We try to be creative with those. For Android users, we are also available to stream and or download on Stitcher. And we can now be found on TuneIn Radio and coming soon to Google Play. So you can check us out on those platforms, especially if you don't like Apple. Well, we have been Steve and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye, Earth. Goodbye, Earth. <laughs>